have a Bible with you, then you can turn to Revelation chapter 14. If you don't have one, there are pew Bibles uh, under the seat probably in front of you or one behind you or somewhere close by you, and I would encourage you to use those. If you don't have a Bible, we have free Bibles on the table out in the narthex, so make sure you take one uh, before you leave. We would love for you to do that. be a great gift from us to you. As we've gone through this book, we've seen repeatedly a separation made or distinction made between two groups of people, and basically it comes down to to this, and it's those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and as as their Lord and, and those who don't. And there's just distinction after distinction after distinction made as we go through this book of, of Revelation. And we're going to see that very clearly uh, today. Uh, we're going to be starting in verse 6 and reading through verse 13 in Revelation chapter 14. And I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And another angel, a third one, Follow them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and are their faith faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow uh, with them. Uh. So we have a trio of angels that are appearing here. It's not the first time we've seen this. If you went all the way back to Revelation chapter 8, verse 13, you see the same uh, sort of thing. And we know that angels are God's messengers. So when they they appear, they bring God's message. And these three angels here do exactly that. Before we begin, I just want to say this, that when it comes to people... Uh, you could categorize every person that has ever lived in one of three groups in regard to the gospel as to where they've, whether they've ever heard the gospel message or not. There are, there are those in every generation, there have been those in every generation who in their whole lifetime have never heard the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ spoken to them. No one knows for certain how many that might be in this world. But we know this. 
with a great deal of certainty that there will be at least some people who come into this world and they live their life and they live, leave this world without ever hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ one single time. That has happened in every generation. There are those who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and they accept it. They own it. They receive it. There are also those, unfortunately, who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and they reject it. They will not ascribe to it. That really has a lot to do with what this book of Revelation has to do with. I do want to say this before we go on, and that is that first group, those people who never hear the gospel. What is their fate? Well, their fate is not exactly the same fate as someone who would hear the gospel and then reject it. You need to understand that. They're not, they're not in the same category with one another. But at the same time, we understand that they will sit under God's judgment. And how do we know that? We know a lot of that because of Romans chapter 1, for instance, and a good bit of Romans. That even though you can't look at the revelation around us, creation around us, and, and, and pull from it all the facets of what we consider to be the gospel of Jesus Christ, that as you look at creation around you, it is sufficient to convince every person that there indeed is a God, a creator God, because the things that are, are here because they were created, they were made at one time. And that includes people. Which means this, that no one has the excuse of saying, I didn't know that God existed. And because God exists and there's ample evidence of that, we should all pursue that God. And in that pursuit, more often than not, they'll find the gospel. I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven. Now, flit in mid-heaven, it sounds like it's probably that place between the highest of heavens and the earth. In other words, in the heavens above the earth. Having an eternal gospel. Now, this is the only place in the book of Revelation that the term gospel appears. Isn't that amazing? doesn't bear anywhere else in the whole book of Revelation. So what do we mean by gospel? Let me just be really clear on this this morning, because this is the most, maybe this is the most important thing that any of us will ever hear in our whole lifetime. And I want to make sure that everyone in this room has heard the gospel clearly articulated. It comes down to this. That we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Now who here has never sinned in their whole lifetime? 
I mean, we all know this. I don't think there's a single person in this room who would conclude that they've never done anything wicked in their lifetime. They've never thought a bad thought, etc., etc., etc. We're all convicted because we know we're guilty. You've hurt people. Other people have hurt you. Sin is part of life in this world. We're all a part of it. There are no exceptions to it. And sin is any want or unconformity to the law of God. In other words, the law that God has set forth is what we're supposed to follow. And I would be willing to bet you that if I ask you this morning to recite the Ten Commandments to me, even though you would tell me that you keep all of them, more than likely you couldn't even tell me what they all are. You probably, some of you haven't even thought about them in a very long time. But the Ten Commandments, in a sense, is a summation of God's law. What is it that God requires of us? What is it that God demands? Does, does, does he rightfully demand from every person that he's created? Now, we know that Jesus summarized those Ten Commandments in two statements. Those first four commandments... Jesus says, mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Can you say that you've done that perfectly? Okay. And the second one is like it, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. Have you loved your neighbor perfectly in the same manner that you would love yourself? Are you just as concerned about all of their issues and whatever as you are about your own. Remember this, when Jesus came into the world, his primary audience was a bunch of legalists. A bunch of people who really believed it was by their own good works that they were making themselves right with God and they were going to wind up in in the heavenly places. If you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus does is take an atomic bomb and sets it off in the midst of those people to show them how deadly wrong they are. To show them that they don't keep even those most basic commandments. There were people there on that day, sitting on that mountain, who could say this, I have never murdered anyone in my whole lifetime. I have never killed another living being. But what Jesus says to them is this. Is if you have been angry with your brother, then you have sufficiently broken that commandment to be thrown into hell for all of eternity. So not just a little bit. You've grossly violated that commandment if you have ever in your lifetime been angry with someone else. He also knows that there are men sitting there and women that are sitting there that can say this, that I have been sexually faithful to my spouse for all of our our wedding days. And even before that. But what he says then is this, that if you have ever lusted for someone else, then you have grossly violated that commandment. So if you've ever had a lustful thought in your whole lifetime, then you've broken it sufficiently to be thrown into hellfire for all of eternity. So who's innocent? 
Are there any innocent people on earth? Have there ever been any innocent people on earth since the days of Adam and Eve when they were first created? The answer is no. Now, let me tell you, there's some things that make me absolutely sick, and one of those is this, is very often people will take Christianity and they just turn it into another form of legalism. In other words, it becomes over and over again just what you do. In other words, the difference between Christianity and other religions is this. You have a set of rules, but your rules are a little bit different than theirs, and your understanding is if you keep your particular set of rules, then you've made yourself right with God and you're going to heaven. That is what's called legalism. It will not save anybody. It never has. It will condemn people. What the gospel is, is this, is we've all sinned and fallen short. None of us can save ourselves. None of us. None of us come close. We have to have a Savior. We must have a Savior who has done for us what we cannot, what we will not, which is not even possible for us to do for ourselves. That's who Jesus is. That perfect Savior. The Son of God. He's eternal. He's always been. There was never a time when he wasn't. All things that have been created have been created through him and by him and for him. And we just celebrated Christmas. And we talked about how how often we talk about the miracles of Jesus as the greatest one being the resurrection. But there's a a very good argument that can be given that the incarnation is a far greater miracle than even the resurrection was. It's almost conceivable that a dead person might possibly come back to life. You know, three days is an awful long time. I'll grant you that. But there have been people that have been legally dead or medically dead for Hours that have breathed life again. But in the incarnation, what we're talking about is God himself entering into the world of man as a man. And he accomplished things. And everything that he did, he accomplished things in his incarnation. He accomplished things in his life. He's the perfectly righteous one. Jesus never sinned one single time. He never had one single single or a sinful thought. Not once. And let me tell you, if he did, you do not have a savior. But he didn't. He gained that perfect righteousness, not for himself, but for people like you and me. People who need a Savior. Once people have heard the gospel, guys, they are no longer indifferent to it. They make a decision. That decision is to receive it, accept it. Or reject it. 
Maybe some people put it on the back burner for a while. Well, I think about it later on in life. I've got a lot of things I want to do first. I want to have some fun first. Then maybe I'll take care of business later on down the road. I'll give it some thought. But life is sometimes really short. It's definitely possible that no one in this room might make it home today. Things like that can happen, right? Death comes suddenly, very often, totally unexpected. A dear friend of mine's a pastor, and he was driving down the turnpike one day. It's a turnpike or I-75 or somewhere. And, and he's looking in his rearview mirror, and he sees this Chevy Suburban suddenly go off, veer off the road, and start flipping down the side of the road. So he stops. Dave's, his name's Dave Netsource. Some of you met him. And he approaches the Suburban, and, and, and you can see there's, there's only one person in it, the driver's in it. There's no one else in the vehicle. And he gets down on his hands and knees, and he begins to, and the Suburban's sitting upside down, I think. And... He begins to try to talk with the guy. The guy was alive. But he was in really bad shape. Dave told him the gospel. And the man died immediately. Is he in heaven now? Well, we don't know. We don't know what he what he did what he did with it, whether he received it or he rejected it. But we have a hope now that we would not have had otherwise. And hope is that he heard it and he received it. And if that's true, then he's in heaven with Jesus. But let me tell you, if he did not, he is not. That may rub some people the wrong way. I'm sorry, maybe if it does. But you need to understand something. This is not what I say. It's not what I think. It's not what I've discerned. This is, this is the clear teaching of the Bible. It's the clear teaching of Jesus Christ. And either it's true, absolutely true, no doubt about it true, or it's not. That's the gospel. It comes down to, do you believe it? And let me tell you something. If you really believe it, there would be evidence of that belief in your life. You cannot truly receive the gospel of Jesus and not be transformed. To become a different person. Because now the Holy Spirit of God is indwelling you. And God's not going to be satisfied for you to stay where you are. He's going to move in you. And He's going to change you. And your perspective on things is going to be 180 degrees different. You're going to see things in a totally different light. People are going to see the love of God displayed in you. 
Not perfectly. Because you're yet still a sinner. But that evidence will be there. Every time. Verse 7, he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. This is what we're talking about. This is what the gospel part of the gospel has to do with. It's knowing that we're answerable to God. And that he alone is worthy of absolute glory. We've seen this theme of judgment over and over again in the book of Revelation. It's been very, very apparent in a, in a number of places and, and very clearly in those places, chapter 6, for instance, and at the end of it and some other places, is talking about the final judgment. So the final judgment is not something that you find just at the end of the book of Revelation. It's a theme that, that runs all through the book and helps hold the whole book together. That there is a day of judgment coming when all people will stand before God and they will give an account to God. That's even true for believers. You need to understand that. That we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But Christians, believers that approach that throne do not have to fear being cast out. Because what we're going to give an account of is what we have done with the good life God has given to us. Have we used that life for God's glory or have we used it for our own glory? Have we used it for the benefit of other people? Or have we used it mostly for our own benefit? Have there been people drawn to Christ because of the life they've seen us live? That they've come to the conclusion that that person knows something I don't know. Or they know someone I don't know. One of the, one of the things that really hit me hard back in when I was there, I was just been a believer since I was in my 30s. I was 40 years old before I became a pastor. But I grew up in the church. In my opinion, the Christians, by the time I was in college, were well, a bunch of hypocrites because they talk about this, they talk about the love of God, they talk about being good to people, so on and so forth. I just don't see too many of them doing much of that. My picture was the church. I'm just full of a bunch of hypocritical people who say one thing and do something different. Or they believe one thing, but they don't act like they believe it. They believe other stuff. There was a, there was a missionary the first time that I went. I went to church with Lori every now and then. She got to where she was going regular. And let me tell you, one of the biggest testimonies to me was she changed. And there were some other people that were that I worked with. He used to be my party hardy buddies. 
the drinking buddies and the, doing all other kinds of immoral things, and the, the drunkenness buddies, and other things that went along with that. Who had made professions of faith in Christ recently, and they were different. I came to understand something. These people know something. Perhaps they know someone that I don't. That missionary and his family had given up everything. The, 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 the people would put value on in this world. Everything. Job. Money. House. Family. To go to Uganda to make sure there were at least some people in this world who did hear the gospel before they died, who otherwise might not have. Let me tell you something, guys. That spoke to me like nothing else would have. They were willing to sacrifice what appeared from a human perspective to be absolutely everything for the advancement of this gospel stuff. Notice in verse 7 here, what's, what's celebrated about God is the fact that he's the creator, like we were talking about before, that, that, that there's ample evidence. And, and let me tell you something. I'm a scientist, too. Most of you know that. But what I would tell you is this, is science is more and more reaffirming the necessity of a creator, a designer, someone who made all of this, not the other way around. The deeper we go, the more complicated it gets. And the more complicated it gets, the more demand there is that there be design behind all of it. Not just happenstance. You understand that people are making a decision. They're either going to say, okay, God did all of it, or it just all happened by chance. Everything happened by chance. Chance is the power that created this universe. Chance is the power that created life. Chance is the power that created people. Just a lot of bum luck. And let me tell you, you're talking about truckloads of nothing but bum luck. There's a sense in which, guys, it takes a lot more faith to not believe than it does to believe. Everyone's faith is in something. The question is, what? The second angel appears in verse 8, has a message. And one of the things I wanted to point out before is this is these angels, they're calling out in a great voice, a, a loud voice. And it seems to be the reason for that is so that everyone will hear what they have to say. 
Everyone on earth will hear what they have to say. The second one comes, and what he announces is this, is fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. If you know anything about Babylon, it was an ancient city, and, it was the, and the Babylonians were the ones who conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the city and destroyed the temple of God, Solomon's temple. They tore it down to the foundation stones and leveled the city. Not many years after that, Babylon fell to the Persians. And they did the same thing to Babylon, at least in part. In the book of Revelation, Babylon represents... Now, there's some things, symbols and signs, you don't really get... You know, we don't have real answers for necessarily, but this is one of them. That is that Babylon represents the wicked, evil world. It's a symbol here. And if, you, if, you, if you go through the book of Revelation, you can't come to any other conclusion. That's what, that's what Babylon represents in this book, is the unbelieving world. Evilness, wickedness. Well, most of you know I can go on and on. <laughs> uh, but I think I'm going to stop right about here. I think we've had a lot to think about today and certainly a lot to praise God for. You think about this gospel. The question is, have you heard? And there's a follow-up question. What have you done? What are you going to do about it?